This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend A History of Russia from Peter the Great to Gorbachev by Mark Steinberg. I don't know as much Russian history as I'd like, and while this series has been a chance for me to bone up, I'm still woefully unaware of large swaths of the past of one of the world's great powers. Now's my chance to fix it, and yours too. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. of Japan podcast, episode 170, The Maelstrom, part 8. Today we're going to discuss the final land battle of any real significance in the Russo-Japanese War, the Battle of Mukden. First, a quick overview of the tactical situation. Once Port Arthur was surrounded and any hope that the Russians might be able to rescue the garrison there was dashed, Mukden became the forwardmost base of the Russian army. The city, which had once been the capital of the Qing Dynasty of China before the fall of Beijing in 1644, was now home to a Russian railway hub that connected all the way back to European Russia. As long as the commander of Russian forces in Manchuria, Alexei Kropotkin, could hang on to Mukden, he could bring in fresh reinforcements and stood a better chance of holding out against the Japanese advance. Of course, his opposition, Field Marshal Oyama Iwao, was just as aware of that as he was, and had his eye on Mukden as well. If the Japanese could take the city, the Russians would effectively lose control of southern Manchuria. Their next closest major staging ground was at Harbin, hundreds of miles north. Unfortunately for both sides, after the short-lived counterattack by the Russians at the Shah River, things stalled out a bit. After all, Manchuria is next to Siberia, which, from what I hear, can get pretty cold sometimes, and winter is coming. After the failed Russian counterattack in October, both sides suspended further advances for three months. The freezing temperatures and massive snowdrifts made it nearly impossible to maneuver. Even if troops could move across the snow, they couldn't see where they were going, and were as likely to accidentally walk off a cliff as win a major battle. The Japanese, in particular, were very interested in waiting. Once Nogi succeeded in seizing Port Arthur, which was totally going to happen any day now, right? His forces could be brought north to assist with the offensive. The Russians, by this point, had eight months to move reinforcements into Manchuria, and remember that Kuropotkin's initial estimate had been that it would take six months to get enough troops to Asia to win the war. The tides were starting to turn against the Japanese, and reinforcements were desperately needed to maintain some kind of parity against the constantly growing Russian numbers. 
Of course, it would take until January for Port Arthur to finally fall, but when it did, the Japanese forces there, rather than taking what I'm sure all involved thought would be a well-earned rest, started trudging north to reinforce their comrades. In early January, Kuropotkin also received news of Port Arthur's surrender. The commanding general of the Port Arthur garrison, Anatoly Stosel, had taken General Nogi's offer of parole and been released back to Russia on the promise that he was done fighting the Japanese. There, Stosel provided a detailed explanation of what had happened at Port Arthur, and joined a growing contingent of officers who blamed Kuropotkin for failing to fight off the Japanese. If only Kuropotkin had been more aggressive, he might have saved Port Arthur, so clearly this is not my fault, guys. Not that attempting to pin the blame on Kuropotkin worked. Stosel was court-martialed for cowardice, found guilty, and sentenced to death, with the sentence commuted to ten years' imprisonment. He was eventually pardoned by the Tsar, but appears to have taken that accusation of cowardice a bit personally. Stosel re-enlisted in the army at the start of World War I and would die fighting the Germans in 1915. This time, he would not surrender. Once Kuropotkin heard through the grapevine that A, Port Arthur was lost, which means Japanese reinforcements are headed this way, and B, his reputation was under attack back in the capital, he decided on another counterattack to prove that he was not entirely passive. And hey, this one might even work. The spot for the counterattack was a small village named Sandopu, 38 miles, or 58 kilometers, from Mukden. At Sandapu, one side of the Japanese advance had gotten slightly ahead of the rest of the Japanese line. That exposed it to a counterattack. Kuropotkin wanted to attack this overexposed part of the line and force it back. The Japanese would have to regroup, buying Russia more time. This was not actually a bad plan. It was actually good enough, in fact, that one of Kuropotkin's subordinates, Georgi Stackelberg, promptly leaked the plan to a war correspondent from a major French newspaper. Stackelberg wanted to make sure that if the plan worked, he got all the credit rather than Kuropotkin. However, the Japanese embassy in Paris apparently had not let their newspaper subscriptions expire, because they promptly got wind of the story and forwarded it back to army headquarters. So the Japanese knew the counterattack was coming. Indeed, it was obvious something was going on, even without the leak, since Japanese advanced scouts reported Russian units redeploying into attack formations, and the Russians launched a massive cavalry raid to pave the way for their attack. So when the Russians went on their surprise counterattack on January 19th, things went to hell pretty quickly. The Japanese, aware of what was coming, had heavily fortified the village of Sandapu and fought off the first wave of Russians with little trouble. However, the Russians had committed more forces to the attack than the Japanese had initially realized, and even with their defensive position, the Japanese in Sandopu found that after a few days, the Russians were close to surrounding them, and in a few places had broken into the village itself. By the morning of January 28th, the Russians had broken through the defenses of the village in a couple of spots, and one detachment had nearly succeeded in getting behind the Japanese and cutting off Sandapu from any help of rescue. 
All this despite the fact that part of the Russian force got lost in a blizzard and actually ended up attacking the wrong village. Now at last it seemed that victory was within Russia's grasp. For the first time, Russia was about to win a land battle. The armies of the motherland advanced forward. And then, on January 29, 1905, Kropotkin got spooked. He was convinced that his forces were overcommitted and that if he continued to assault Sandopu, a Japanese counterattack would come and wipe his troops out. To head off such an eventuality, he ordered a withdrawal. His subordinate commanders were furious. For the first time, Russia had a real chance of a victory on the ground against Japan, and Kropotkin had gotten spooked by something that obviously wasn't even there and thrown away a shot at winning. General Stackelberg, the same guy who leaked the initial plan for the attack, actually resigned his commission, claiming illness so that Kropotkin couldn't refuse him, to go back to Russia and badmouth Kuropotkin as a coward. Which is an accusation that, to be frank, I'm a bit iffy on. Yes, Kuropotkin was very overcautious and he made some very dumb mistakes, but personally I attribute that more to a sort of psychic sense of self-defeat. Kuropotkin got to the point where he expected to always be outgeneraled by the Japanese, and as a result started outgeneraling himself. Not cowardice in the sense of being afraid of battle, then, but a lack of confidence in his own skills as a general. Which is kind of fair, considering the torrent of abuse over his passive strategy that he'd been dealing with for over a year at this point. When we started off this series, I made a favorable assessment of Kuropotkin as a strategic commander, and I think that does stand. His plan to trade space for time was not fundamentally a bad one and was in the finest of Russian military traditions. It worked on Napoleon, after all. However, as a tactical commander in the field, someone responsible when the rubber hits the road, he was not a good fit. He just psyched himself out too much. By February, then, the Japanese were just outside Mukden. However, they were also in an increasingly tight spot. Japanese manpower reserves were running low, Casualties in the war had been way higher than predicted, and even with wartime conscription up and running, the army was just having a hard time replacing its losses, especially after meat grinder battles like Port Arthur. The army was also starting to run into supply issues. In classic Russian fashion, the retreating armies of the Tsar had blown up roads and bridges and ripped up railroad tracks to slow down the Japanese advance which made getting ammunition, food, medical supplies, reinforcements, all of that, very hard. This was especially true because Japanese officer training did not emphasize the bookish supply of warfare. Maintaining a good supply line was just not a skill that most officers learned during their time in training. And then there was the news from Europe. Months ago, the Tsar had ordered the Russian Baltic fleet to head east to confront the Japanese. The progress of the fleet had been slow, particularly since the British, with their hold on both the Suez Canal and the Strait of Gibraltar, had closed the Mediterranean to the Russians, but now the Russian fleet was getting close. If the Russian fleet arrived and defeated the Japanese navy, the Russians could prevent any supplies or reinforcements from making it from Japan to Manchuria. 
Japan would, if that happened, almost certainly lose the war as its army on the continent would be starved of everything it needed to run. With all these problems facing him, Oyama did the one thing Alexei Kuropotkin was unwilling or unable to do. He rolled the dice. Oyama decided to risk the fate of the war on the chance that he could defeat the Russians at Mukden and do so convincingly. If he could encircle and destroy the Russian ground forces, he'd be able to take out the largest Russian force in Manchuria at a single stroke. And maybe, just maybe, that would be a good enough position to negotiate the end of the war from. Oyama's plan was to deploy his forces in a sort of crescent formation, basically hoping to wrap his armies around the Russian forces. He ordered attacks to begin on February 20th, 1905. At first, Japanese forces were able to smash into the demoralized Russians and make some headway. But before long, the Japanese ran into the same problem that had slowed down their offensives in every previous battle. The Russians had some time to entrench themselves, and once they got those machine guns and barbed wire and artillery into place, breaking through became a lot harder. Really, the only option at that point was for the Japanese to try and blast their way through with their own artillery, which is a pretty slow way to win a battle and not the kind of thing you want to be relying on when you have a tight schedule to keep. By the final days of February, the Japanese advance basically had ground to a halt. Even when the Japanese were able to break through Russian lines, it took practically no time at all for Russian reinforcements to arrive, set up, and prevent the Japanese from continuing. So what ultimately undid the Russians? Well, if your first instinct was to guess Kropotkin, then congratulations, you figured out how this story is unfolding. After a stalemate that lasted over two weeks, General Kropotkin was the one to finally screw the pooch. What caused Kropotkin to make his fatal mistake was our old friend, General Nogi Moreske. Having finally won the Battle of Port Arthur, thanks primarily to the fact that he had been replaced by his own subordinate, Nogi came north to assist Oyama's attack. Nogi was placed on the far western wing of the Japanese advance, and apparently felt he had something to prove after the mess that was Port Arthur, because he pushed his troops hard to assault the western wing of the Russian army. Nogi's hope was to try and get around the side of the Russians, to flank them and then drive the Russians back in the classical style of a Napoleonic-era military commander. Unfortunately for him, the Russian commanders on the western wing were pretty canny and knew what he was trying to do, and carefully redeployed their defenses to block him every time Nogi tried to get around their flank. However, Kuropotkin eventually became convinced that Nogi's assault was the focal point of the Japanese attack. He then insisted on taking personal command of the western wing of the Russian army, and shifted a huge number of reinforcements over from other parts of the line to block Nogi's advance. On March 7th, those reinforcements started to move. However, Kropotkin neglected to provide any sort of cover or trickery or more general reorganization that would prevent the Japanese from realizing what he was doing because if the Japanese saw huge numbers of troops being pulled from one part of the battle to go to a different part of the battle, 
Well, they'd know that that first part of the Russian line was weaker than all the rest, the part all the reinforcements had come from. And wouldn't it make sense to attack that spot with literally everything you have? Why, yes. Yes, it would. When it became clear that Kuropotkin was reorganizing his line for an offensive, Oyama ordered an assault to take advantage of the disorganized Russian forces. The Russian defenders on the ground, now shorthanded because of Kuropotkin's redeployment, were unable to hold the line. The center of the Russian line, from which all of these reinforcements had been taken, caved in, and over the next few days the Japanese ruthlessly exploited this breach. By March 9, 1905, Kuropotkin gave up hope and ordered his units to begin withdrawing. Unfortunately for him, by that point the easternmost part of his battle line had disintegrated as well, and the Japanese units on that end of the battlefield started moving to cut off the Russian line of retreat. When word of this got out, the Russian defenders, who had been retreating in an orderly fashion with their supplies and weapons, panicked and went into a full-scale flight for safety. The Japanese were trying to cut off the Russian retreat and encircle them, and nobody in the Russian army wanted to be the one who was left behind when that happened. In the end, Alexei Kuropotkin could not hold Mukden. One day after he gave his retreat order, the Japanese entered the city. So, was the Battle of Mukden everything that Oyama needed to bring the land war to a conclusion? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, the panicked Russians had left behind a massive stockpile of supplies, artillery, and pretty much anything else that could have slowed them down. Those supplies were a huge boon to a badly depleted Japanese army. The Japanese also captured the town of Mukden itself intact, and were able to make use of the city's rail yards and food stockpiles, while being careful not to mistreat the civilian population. Kropotkin's losses were also pretty bad. He left about a third of his force, 88,000 out of 320,000, either dead, wounded, missing, or captured at Mukden, which is a pretty substantial blow. Indeed, Kuropotkin's actions on the days after Mukden's fall were those of a man who knew he had lost badly. Once he managed to get control of his army back after that panicked flight from the battlefield, Kuropotkin ordered a scorched-earth retreat towards Harbin, abandoning southern Manchuria altogether and burning down several Japanese towns along the way to prevent them from aiding the Japanese, which of course only furthered the tendency of most Chinese in the region to sympathize with and aid the Japanese. The official history of the first division of the Imperial Army put what I think is the best possible spin on this litany of accomplishments when it referred to Mukden as our Sekigahara, just as the fateful battle between Eastern and Western Japan had shaped the nature of Japanese politics for two and a half centuries, Mukden would be a victory to shape the nature of Asian politics for generations to come. Right? Right? Well, not really. Because remember, the goal at Mukden had not just been to force the Russians to run away, but to destroy their army altogether. The hope had been to trap all of Kuropotkin's forces, or at least most of them, and that had not happened. The Russian army may have abandoned southern Manchuria, but it was still out there, 
and every day more reinforcements were arriving. Russian ground forces were still a real threat. To make things worse, the Japanese couldn't pursue the retreating Russians. They were already at the breaking point of their supply lines, and capturing all those stockpiled Russian supplies was just enough to make up for existing shortfalls, not to press ahead. The roads were just too bad, the railways too damaged, the logistics not well organized enough to keep the Japanese moving. If, as Napoleon Bonaparte once said, an army marches on its stomach, then the Japanese were just, at this point, incapable of anything other than a slow crawl. And then, of course, there were the mounting casualties. The Japanese may have killed, wounded, or captured 88,000 Russians, but they lost 75,000 of their own doing it, and a far higher proportion of those were killed, 15,000 to around 7,500. And lest we forget, the Japanese just didn't have the manpower reserves to match a place like Russia. Most of the young men who were not already in war-supporting positions had been drafted. To get more, the army would have to either raise or lower the draft age, or remove certain medical deferments, or remove the deferments for students, and that last one would have been very unpopular with the middle and upper classes, who had the political clout to make some serious noise in Tokyo about their kids being sent off to war. As Richard Nixon would learn half a century later, the kind of kids who can afford to go to college in the age before student loans are the kind of kids with parents who can make some real trouble for you. Things were getting pretty bad. I haven't been focusing on casualty counts as much as I probably should have, so let's back this thing up and talk about it. At the Yalu River, 1,000 killed, wounded, or missing. The entire Port Arthur campaign, 63,000 killed, wounded, or missing. The entire Liaoyang campaign, another 26,000 or so. And now Mukden, which, including the battles leading up to it, cost another 100,000 killed, wounded, or missing. All told, we're looking at casualty counts coming just under the 200,000 mark. Japan was not, and still is not, a big country. They could not just absorb losses like that. In Tokyo itself, people were getting restless. It seemed that even as the victories were piling up, more and more boys were coming home in coffins. None of these victories appears to be doing very much, and what kind of idiot wins every battle but still ends up somehow not being able to win the war? The Imperial Diet was getting a bit antsy, too. They'd opened up the purse strings at the start of the war. After all, it was their patriotic duty as the national legislature to support the war any way they could, and the best way they had was to throw bucket loads of cash at the military. However, none of those expenditures were producing the kind of swift, decisive victory that the military had promised, and to make things worse, the bastards had the audacity to keep coming back for more money despite not being able to get anything done. Japan had already taken out massive loans to fuel the war. Going further into debt meant risking a political crisis, because odds were pretty good that their constituents would not support more borrowing. In early February 1905, talk started going around the diet of cutting funding for the war effort. If the military couldn't actually win, clearly peace has to get made and the best way to compel the military to make peace would be to make it impossible to continue the war. 
This motion never actually came to a vote, but it scared the bejesus out of the military planners ensconced in army headquarters in Ichiyaya. If the Diet actually went through with a threat to shut down the military budget, the army would have to make peace almost immediately. Otherwise, the supplies necessary to continue the war would dry up, and Japan would be in an awful position. So in the end, the army was caught in a nigh-impossible situation. It had thrown everything, literally everything, including garrison troops that weren't even supposed to leave the Japanese home islands, at the Russians. Technically, they'd won, but had failed to accomplish the key strategic objective. The Russian army was still intact. Reinforcements were on the way, the Japanese army was at the limits of its ability to supply itself, so pushing forward and defeating the Russians again was out of the question. The numbers were starting to tip in favor of the Russians, as the two sides had been just about evenly matched at Mukden, and so in the future, odds were pretty good the Japanese would start to be outnumbered. In the end, the Imperial Japanese Army had gambled the entire war on being able to beat the Russians quickly and decisively. It had succeeded in doing neither. Now it was possible that all of the carnage, all of the losses, could amount to nothing. Japan could even lose its first modern war. So wait a minute, what the hell? We've gone through the 20th century history of Japan how many times before? We know Japan's supposed to win this one, right? But now it sounds like the best thing Japan can hope for is essentially a draw. And here's where we get to what I think is one of the most important aspects of the war at least from the Japanese perspective. Before the Russo-Japanese War, the army was clearly the senior military service in Japan. It enjoyed the favor of Japan's leadership, prime picks of draftees and resources, and pretty much a guaranteed check mark on anything it asked for. And with all that, the army just couldn't get it done against Russia. In the end, spoilers, Japan is going to win this war, However, it's not going to be the Japanese army that gets the job done. Instead, a combination of the internal destabilization of Russia and a surprisingly good showing by the Imperial Japanese Navy is going to win out. So we're going to leave our trifecta of generals, Oyama, Nogi, and Kodama Gentaro, on the battlefield of Mukden. Next week, we're going to switch gears, talk about the short but decisive naval war in 1905, and then eventually, the upheavals in Russia. A surprise Japanese victory at sea, and what's starting to look like a revolution in the streets of St. Petersburg, are going to combine to do the one thing the army couldn't, bring the war to an end. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Jobert Ludovic and Juan David Morapena for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the Maelstrom Part 9.